let's, let's jump into it. So, understanding Old Testament narratives like the ones that we find in 2 Samuel uh, can often be difficult. Would, would you agree to that? It's, it's not necessarily difficult to understand uh, the story, uh, but it oftentimes is understand, hard to understand what it means. Uh, and, and certainly, 2 Samuel chapter 4, after the reading of it, you could recognize that this is certainly no exception. Uh, oftentimes, what we, what we need to do to understand it is, or at least there is something that we can do that can help us to understand it, and, and that is to look for a particular verse or a particular phrase that kind of sets out amongst the rest of it to kind of let us understand what the whole of the narrative is really all about. And I think that, that sometimes that is a phrase that's provided for us by the author, the one that's writing it. Sometimes it's a, a phrase that is, is a quote of one of the characters within uh, the text itself. And I think that's what we have here. In 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 11, uh, we see a quote by, by David, by King David. Look at, look at that, if you will, with me. He says, he said, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man and his own house and his bed, shall I not now require his blood of your hand and destroy you from the earth? Here's what's happening in this narrative. David is the king. David is the one who enacts justice. And what we find is, is that he is faithful and just to judge the, the sinful acts of of wicked men. That's what's happening within this text. We'll see more of that as we unpack it together. But what does that mean for you and I? What does it teach us about God and teach us about ourselves? Well, we have to keep in mind that, that David is a king, but he is but a shadow of a king to come. He is but a type. When we read about all of these prophet, priests, and kings, we understand that they are just a glimpse of a fallen, greater prophet, priest, and king that will ultimately come and will succeed where these ultimately fail. But if this man is faithful and just to enact justice and to judge the wicked acts and the sinful acts of wicked men, then we know even all the more that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is faithful to do the same. That Jesus Christ is faithful to judge wicked acts of men. Now, I understand without just, I could tell by the looks of your face, nobody woke up this morning going, I can't wait to get to church and listen to that faithfulness of Jesus towards sinners message. Nobody does that. Nobody's looking for that. In fact, we want to hear just the opposite. But what I would, what I would encourage you to do and to understand that God not only wants us to know what we want to know, He wants us to know everything we need to know. And that's why we preach to the whole Word of God, even passages like this that sometimes can be very difficult. We need to hear it. We need to know that God is faithful in His judgment towards sinners if we're ever going to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. So here's what we want to do. With this understanding that Jesus is faithful and just, to judge the wicked actions of sinful men and of wicked men, then there are two specific sins that we see that he is faithful to judge. Two of them, we're to look at them very quickly this morning. First of all, he is faithful to judge, note this, the cowardice act, act of bullying. The cowardice act of bullying. 
And now, notice if you will, in the beginning of chapter 4, we're introduced by two men, to, to two men. One is, one his name is Benah, the other is Rechab, and we, we're introduced to them, we're told a little bit about where they're from, a little bit about their background, a little bit about what they do. We find out that they're lower level uh, officers, they're, they're, they're captains, and, and their job is to lead out gr- small groups of mercenaries into the surrounding villages and to be able to uh, 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 take the spoils from these villages and to bring them back to Israel. And so these men are not wealthy men. They're not high-ranking officials in the government, but they see an opportunity here. They know that, that their team, uh, Ishbosheth, the team of Saul, is going down, and David's team is actually rising up. And so they want to kind of abandon this ship before it goes down. They want to make sure that they secure their future. So now they're looking for a way to be able to go and play for David's team. And so they find the opportunity in the fact that, that they have the opportunity to kill Ishbosheth, who is the king of Israel and also the son of Saul. And so it's exactly what they do. They take, they take his life and they take his head and they travel two days over to David. And there they, they display this head before David and they let them know that they're the ones who killed the king. Now what they're expecting, this is important to understand, what they are expecting is that they are going to receive a hero's welcome. That they're going to go in with the head of Ishbosheth and everybody's going to praise them because now there's no longer any barriers for David to be able to take the king, uh, take the throne of Israel. So they believe they're going to be championed as heroes. In their minds, they think they're heroes. But the author is very careful to be able to use wordage and describe them in a way that's anything but heroes. Instead, he pictures them as cowards. I want to point a couple things out in the text to where we see this. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, it says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed. Now, we, we skipped over a little bit of uh, the scripture. Let me kind of catch you up to speed. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner died, Abner was the commander of Ishbosheth's army. And, uh, and, and when Abner died, and the way that he died was he was revenged by Joab. Joab killed him for killing his brother. Now, when he's dead, now Ishbosheth loses heart. He begins to fear because now there's nobody that is going to fight their enemies. There's nobody that's going to fight King David. And so now within him, it says that his courage failed. So these two men did not come up against some mighty, powerful king. This is the cowardly lion. Think Wizard of Oz. Who's got my tail? Think think that type of thing. Not a guy that's really brave and ready to go, ready to go to fisticuffs. This is not that type of guy. And then we see another hint that, this, that these men were not heroes, but they were cowards because all of a sudden they introduce uh, his, his nephew Mephibosheth in all this in verse 4. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan and the grandson of Saul. And so what we find is it tells this story. And you have to wonder, why is he inserting this here? Why is he telling us about this young man? And he tells him about how when his, his nurse was watching after him when he was five years old, she heard that Saul and Jonathan had died, so she picked him up and she began to run out of the house. And when she did, he fell, and now he's crippled. Why is that an important fact here? Well, it's important because if you kill a king, you better beware that their sons and their heirs are going to come after you with revenge. But here, not only does he kill the cowardly king, but they're in no fear whatsoever of somebody coming after them, running after them. Why? Because whoever would run after them, him, heir, is a crippled child. They have nothing to fear in this. 
And so he gives us one more picture, actually a third picture of show to show just how cowardly they were, not just by who they killed, but also how they killed him. When you continue to read down, beginning in verse 5, you find out that they actually snuck into the man's home while he was sleeping and took a dagger and they thrust it into his stomach. When you're sleeping, you're is incredibly vulnerable. There's nothing you could do to be able to protect yourself. So the whole point here is to show that these men who presented themselves as men of courage to do something that was lofty, to, think, to do something that was heroic, is actually just the opposite. It was the cowardly act of bullying weak, a weak man. You say, well, what is the point of this? Well, remember at the very end of this, these two men are judged. Their hands and their feet are cut off and they are left hanging in a tree. It says the, the idea here is to put it together and to understand that just as King David was not going to put, be put up with this cowardly act of bullying, neither does our God. He does not put up when you and I take part in the bullying of those who are weaker around us. Now, I don't know about you, but I love to be able to hear stories of justice and justice to happen. In fact, this last week I was reading about a man by the name of Daryl Loomis who was a trucker. And for years and years, he would, he would drive his truck, his Peterbilt truck, from Cincinnati to Atlanta. And between there, there was a place called uh, Joe's Cafe. And he would always go to Joe's whenever he had the opportunity, and he'd always order the same thing, meatloaf with mashed potatoes and gravy and tea. And he had been coming and eating and sitting at the very same stool week after week after week for almost 30 years. Well, one day he came in, he parked his Peter, uh, P- Peterbilt uh, truck out in the um, parking lot, went in, sat the same stool, ordered the same meal, and he began to eat. And as he began to eat, all of a sudden there came a huge roar from outside into the parking lot. And in came in a biker gang of about 12 men, all riding Harley Davidsons. And they all came in and they parked next to his truck and they all came in. And, and as, as Daryl was sitting just eating his food, minding himself, the leader comes in and he looks and immediately they begin to pick on Daryl. And they say, well, who is this little sissy at the counter? He sneered. And Daryl, just remaining silent, continued to eat his lunch. And then all of a sudden, the gang forming around him, a semicircle around Daryl, the gang members started snapping their fingers in, in rhythmic cadence. Unperturbed, Daryl just sat and ate his lunch. One of the gang members picked up Daryl's iced tea and poured it over his head. And the others watched, and still snapping their fingers in unison. Then, then, then one of them took, and, and took the mashed potatoes and wiped it in Daryl's ear and then wiped the rest of it off on his back. Daryl remained calm and he didn't respond at all. He simply continued to eat his lunch. Although the gang continued to harass and taunt Daryl, he never responded to any of it. Even when Daryl finished his lunch, he only stood up, he turned to Joe, the owner of the diner, and he silently paid his bill and he left the diner without saying a word. The leader of the gang laughed and said, Joe, what a wimp. That guy sure ain't much of a man. Joe, the owner of the diner, then responded while looking out of the window, said, no, and ain't much of a driver either. He just ran over all 12 Harleys. <laughs> when, I read, when I read that this week, there's something in this. You're like, go, yes, I love that. What is that that's in us that love to hear stories of justice? I think it's not just believers in Jesus Christ. I think you could be apart from Christ and love stories of justice. The reason for that is because I think all men, we know that all men have been created in the image of God. 
And so even though that, that image is severely marred, there are still aspects of who God is in us because He created us that way. And so because of the heart of God wants justice, even fallen man senses a desire for some level of justice, even if it's not always for the right motivation. But for God's people, that's cleaned up and energized all the more. Because when God saves us, He changes us. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new nature. And we all the more desire that justice would actually be done. We want to see justice. And you say, well, where is it? I have to believe in a God that judges wrongdoers. Why? Because I have to do something when, when children are, are abused, innocent children are abused at the hands of adults. i got to do something with that. When there's genocide around the world and people are dying just because of their ethnicity, I have to do something about that. When there's racial hatred and things done because of somebody, because of the color of their skin, there's something in me that is angered by that, and I need something to be done at that. What is that? What, where is that coming from? It's coming from the heart of God. The Bible teaches us and says several things about God that He is the one that does not take this kind of action lightly, this kind of cowardice, bullying. Uh, we, we read in the Scriptures in Psalm 10, verses 17 through 18, O oh Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is on earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 140, verse 12 says, I know that the Lord will re maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. And so this is the heart of God. This is how He views this. This is how He looks after those who are weak and those who have been mistreated. But there's a call for us to be able to do the same. Proverbs 31, verses 8 through 9 says this. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth. Judge righteously. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Psalm 82 verse 3 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. What does this all tell us? I think it tells us at least three things. I think first of all, at minimum, it tells us that we are not to take part in any manner of cowardice act of bullying. That you and I are never to use our position or our power to take advantage of the disadvantaged. That, that, that it's true, whether we're on the playground, whether at school, whether we're in the workplace, at home, or even in the church, we often forget the words of Jesus when he says, what you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you have done unto me. That is both in the positive and the negative. The positive is, is when we feed the poor, take care of the poor, look after the poor, and, 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 and help those that are in need around us, we are helping Jesus Christ. We're doing those very acts as an act of worship to God. And the negative, when you and I take advantage of those who are disadvantaged, the Bible says we're doing the very thing that we're doing to them is against God. So the idea of this is bullies beware. Bullies beware. You're not doing your actions toward man. You're doing your actions to an all-powerful God. All right? That's at least what it means. I think the second thing that it means is this, is that you are not alone. 
If you're in your home or in your office or at your school or whatever, you think the whole world is coming up against you, you think that people are mistreating you and they may very well be mistreating you, you might be a woman here or you might be a man here today that your spouse has divorced you, you, have, you didn't want the divorce, you didn't want the separation in your marriage, and now because of the courts, now you're even losing out even more, you're coming out on the raw end of things. I want you to know that God does not turn a blind eye to injustice. God sees it, and he is with you, and he loves you, and God will repay. Okay? Got that? Third thing, and I think that if one was the least that we should learn from it, I think here's at least the most that we should learn from it, and that is, at best, we are to become defenders of the weak. It's not enough for you and I just to say, hey, let's not pick on each other, or to pick on people. Or, to, or, or to, to, to use our finances to be able to take advantage of somebody else in the midst of their distress. Instead, what it tells us is that we need to be defenders of the weak. We are to speak up where there is injustice being done. We are to speak for those who cannot speak and act for those who cannot act. I love you millennials. And there's a lot of them in our church. I love millennials. Here's why I love millennials. Because millennials in their culture, they are colorblind. I love it. And they are the, some of the very first who will step up and, and a willingness to speak out whenever somebody is mistreated because of ethnicity, race, or color, or for any other reason. And they see that this is harsh. And I love that about millennials. The sad part, I think, and the weakness, I think, millennials sometimes, and we've seen this in this newer generation, is that sometimes they lose sight and, and they don't seem to have as much passion for the unborn. In other words, I just read recently in an article that it was basically saying is they do great with all of those other issues and those who are born, they look after the rights, but it seems like we're in a generation where all of a sudden they don't have the same conviction as the, their parents and the generation before them that there are unborn children who are being killed, that are being killed. Who is more innocent and who is more, more vulnerable than unborn children? I don't know if you read this, and, and, and this, isn't, this isn't politics. Listen, get your mind out of politics and just be transformed by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. When we, when we hear what's going on in New York City, where people this last week are, are approving a new bill that would allow people to abort children all the way up to the day of their birth, when people are outside rejoicing over it, we are broken. There's something so wrong for that. And so here's what I would say. I would say sometimes the generation, sometimes, please don't, don't, don't back me in a corner, sometimes the generation before, they were great at looking after the unborn, not so great at those that were born. Those in a generation just right now, the, the now generation, they're great with those who are born, maybe not with those who are unborn. We need to be great with all. Anybody in anywhere where there is injustice, we need to be able to speak out. Now, I want to caution you for something before we move on to this last point. I want to caution you that there is a movement today, even at my own seminary, and there's a movement across the Southern Baptist Convention of social justice. And I want to be very careful about this because in some aspects, it is wonderful. It is very biblical. But in some aspects, it's going way too far. See, there are some who are pronouncing this social justice that are actually blurring the gospel with a social gospel. In other words, they say, hey, listen, the gospel is all about having justice for all. That's a part of the gospel. It's essential to people knowing what the gospel is. And here's what I would say to you, it is not. 
Social justice for the weak is not essential to the gospel message. What is essential to the gospel message, when we share the gospel, we teach that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that no matter what we do, we can never earn favor by God or to be able to have our sins that are forgiven. But God, in His great grace and His great mercy, sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us who are sinners. And if we repent and believe, we too will be saved. That's essential to the gospel. What is not essential to the gospel is that I love my wife. It's not essential to the gospel that you are a good citizen or that you take care of justice issues and you look after the poor. That's not essential to the gospel. However, it is essential to a life that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were transformed by the gospel, you have a different heart and you cannot help but to look after those. As we're going to our neighbor and around the world, and as we're traveling around, we are going to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But along the way, you see the injustice of the sinful world, and we cannot help but to speak up. It is not essential to the gospel. It is essential to the life that is transformed by the gospel. Do you understand? Do we, we get that? So bullies beware. The, the Bible is very clear here and that God is faithful to judge the cowardice act of bullying. And number two, this is a shorter point, by the way, so you can rejoice quietly. The dangerous twisting of theology. He's faithful to judge the dangerous twisting of theology. Now we pick up in verse 8. In verse 8, what basically happens here is when these men come and bring the head of of Ishbosheth to David, and he lays them at their feet, they actually make a theological statement. And I want you to, to see this. What they say here is this they said, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Here's the theological statement. He says, The Lord has avenged my Lord. So the Lord God has avenged my Lord David, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, very important to understand what they just did here. They cloaked their sin in theology. They said the reason that we did this is because this is the right thing based on what we know about God and based on His Word. Did you see what they did there? Now, understand, I don't think they did this purposely as a cover-up. In other words, I don't think they were like, oops, we killed the king, that was wrong to do, now we need to cover it up, here's our story. I don't think that's what they did. I think they killed the king because their theology was twisted. They, they, they believed that God was going to have vengeance, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So they decided to take it upon themselves and then just file that under that particular verse. This is what I'm going to do. It's sinful. I have a verse to be able to back it up that lets me know that I'm okay in doing what I'm ultimately doing. But David, and, and the way we know this is because when they come to David, they're not worried, they're not afraid. In fact, they're excited that they're going to receive some kind of great reward from the king. And so they come to him, and in verse 9, here's what happens. But David answered Rechab and Banah, his brother, and sons of Ramon the Barathite. And he says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life and out of every adversary, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and I thought that he was bringing good news, I seized him and I killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward that I gave him for his news. How much more then, when wicked men have killed a righteous man, in his own house, on his bed, 
Shall I not now, I require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? Based on David's response, these guys made three mistakes. Mistake number one, they greatly underestimated the love and the respect that David had for Saul and his family. Greatly underestimated it. The second mistake they made is that they failed to learn from history. It was just a couple chapters ago that the same scene had happened. Do you remember in Ziklag? When Saul died on the battlefield, there's an Amalekite who comes from the battlefield, comes to David and Ziklag, and says, hey, I killed the king. And he's expecting the same type of reward. And what did David do to him? He killed him. They didn't learn from history. Now these guys come back and he basically says, how much more now am I going to treat you with justice now that you've killed an innocent man? And he's come to you. And now, how much more, how, how now am I going to treat you? But the third and most important mistake that they made is they misinterpreted God's word. See, they're talking about the fact that God takes vengeance. And we know that that's true. In fact, the Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the doom comes swiftly. So the idea there is, is guess what? God is the one that takes vengeance. You and I don't have to take vengeance. You know, and I don't have to sit back waiting for those that wrong us and, and wonder how they're going to get theirs. We don't have to do that. We just leave that up to God because God's judgment is perfect. Would you agree? God knows all. God just, you let it go. Walk your way. David understood this. David understood this. These men, however, took this idea that God would take vengeance as giving them an allowance based on that he is a vengeful God, that guess what? Now they were allowed to take vengeance. Do you see how they twist the scriptures? This is all too common of what happens today. Not only do they hold on to one aspect of theology uh, and twist it, but they also ignore all the rest clear teachings of, of the Word of God. For example, in order to do what they would do, they would have to ignore Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And again, Exodus 30, or 21, verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Leviticus 24-17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Dale Ralph Davis says in his commentary, he says, for them... Theology is not truth that lures us to worship God, but a technique that enables us to justify ourselves. We talked about this a little bit last week, didn't we? Is, is it thick in this room or is it just me right now, right? Um, last week, we talked about this idea of people saying, we live in an age that says, judge not lest you be judged. you remember this? And when people say, judge not lest you be judged, they're not giving a warning and trying to help each other going, hey, look, we, we need to be careful on how we judge one another, that we're not judging the intent of other people's heart. That's not what they're saying. Why are they quoting the Scripture? They're quoting the Scripture because it cloaks their sin. And what it does is it basically says, hey, what I'm doing is okay, and you can't say anything about it. That's one example. Let me give you two more examples. Here's one. Um, every once in a while within a church, okay, so this is going to let you know whether you want to join here or not, okay, all right? And by the way, just keep preaching through 2 Samuel. We'll never have to build again. Amen? We'll just never have to build again. Um, everybody else, hey, what did you do? Oh, God wants me to be richer. What did you learn about God's faithful to judge sin, right? People are like, hmm, that should be on a welcome card or something. Hey, welcome to Mercy Hill, where God is faithful to judge sinners. And so, um, but, but the idea is, is, is even within our church, there are times where within our church we have members who, who sin willfully, 
and grossly and continually. Now, let me, let me explain what that means. Every member sins here. You with me? Every, I mean, all the time, many different ways. And what do we do? We go back to God, seek forgiveness, pick up by His grace and His mercy, and move on by His grace and His mercy. That's, hey, welcome to a, a group of sinners, saved by grace. That's what we are. But doing that and falling into sin is completely different than pursuing sin, living in sin, continuing in sin, without any, any desire to be able to repent. In other words, there's, 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 there, it's just outward. And sometimes, even within a body like our own, there will be somebody who sits there and says, I'm going to continue to sin against my wife, and I'm going to continue to do it. Nobody can tell me anything else, and I'm just, this is the way that I'm going to live. And the Bible says when that happens within the church, that what needs to happen is that leaders in the church, elders in the church, will begin to start what's called church discipline. In other words, where they come. Now, the whole point of this church discipline is not to shame somebody, but it's to get somebody to repent of their sin and turn from God and be reconciled with God and with the church itself. Does, does that all make sense? But the moment that the church begins to move to do what God has called them to do, somebody always has a scripture verse for it. Here's the one that I've heard. He who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. You see what we do there? We take a verse take it out of context, cloak our sin in that theology, and then ignore all the rest of the clear teaching within the Word of God so that we can continue to pursue our sin. You want to know the worst one of these altogether? Is the theological truth of once saved, always saved. There are more people probably who are going to hell today based on a false and misunderstanding of once saved, always saved, than probably any other doctrine or theology that I know, especially in our culture. So this is what you're told. Walk an aisle, pray the prayer, get baptized, ask Jesus into the God-sized hole of your heart, come forward, you become a member of the church, and then what do we do? Well, then you're saved, you're good. Don't you, ever, you never have to worry about anything again. Once you're saved, you can, you can never be unsaved. Now, here's, here's the danger with it. There's truth in that. When God saves you, it's a miracle of God. He changes you. He seals you until the day of redemption. Nobody, including yourself, can rip you out of the hand of God. But when he saves you, he changes you. And he changes me. And yes, there are periods of time that we are in flux and we're not walking with God the way that we want. But what the Reformers taught is it's not a, is it better understood, is not once saved, always saved, but the perseverance of the saints. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Why? Because God will never let you go. But when somebody sits there and, sit, and you confront them in their sin and say, Brother, you, you've been to church in 20 years. You haven't, you're living a life far from God. Your language and, and what you do and what you take part in and how you live your life and the sin that you're laying in, none of this looks like you're a Christian. And they turn to you with a smile on their face and say, You know, I ought not to do maybe everything that I'm doing, but at least I have the peace that once you're saved, you're always saved. And then they move on. And can you think of anything more destructive? And what they failed to see is they failed to see the entire book of 1 John, which says these things are written so that you know that you have eternal life. And one of those things is not continuing in, in, that, in that sin, that continual sin that you're seeking and looking after. Unless, I'm not talking about struggle. I'm just talking about giving in and, and going with and just living a sinful life. And so these are the problems. And God says that those who twist that type of theology and live according to it, that dangerous theology, that he will judge those who twist that truth. And instead of allowing themselves to submit to the word, they're trying to get the word to be able to submit to them. Now, if I ended here, this would probably be a real bummer of an afternoon, would it, would it not? 
We'd go out into the bleak darkness and the cold, and we'd be like, well, that was great to be at the house of God. But here's what I want to let you know. In, under, in, other, in order to understand the wonders and the height of God's mercy and His grace and the beauty of His salvation and what His Son has done, we have to understand this. We have to understand that God is always faithful to judge the sin of sinners and to judge those sinners. He is always faithful. And that gets us down. But there's hope in this because this isn't the end of the story. Did you see how this story ends? Just very quickly, this story ends with these men who have sinned, nailed to, basically nailed to a tree on display for everybody because of their sin. That's where you and I belong. Would you admit? All of us deserve the wrath of God. All of us deserve the justice of God. However, there was somebody else who would come that would hang on the tree for us, who would be crucified for us, who would, who would, who would pay that sin for us. And we know that the Savior is ultimately coming. Did you see another glimpse of this as well? We get a, gl- a clear glimpse of who it is. This, this story literally ends with a righteous king being killed by wicked men. Did you notice that? Does that not stir your New Testament theology where you begin to sit there and go, wait a minute, I know another righteous man that was killed by wicked men. And he too was placed in the throne, into the tomb. But did you notice the difference here? The difference is David takes what's left of him, his head, and he puts it in the tomb. It's a way of honoring him and respecting him. When Jesus Christ dies on that cross and he's placed in a tomb, he's not placed in the tomb in a way of honoring him. He's raised from the tomb as a way of God honoring him. And because he rose from the dead, we have confidence that what he did on the cross to pay for your sin and my sin, because it always has to be paid for. Why? Because God is faithful to judge the wicked actions of wicked men. He's always, so it has to be paid somewhere. And so it's either paid on me or it's paid on the person of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. When we leave here today, there should be some of us stirring, sitting there and going, bro, I'm a bully. I don't need to be a part of it. Hey, listen, I need to, make, I need to be more vocal. I need to be able to stand up. Hey, I need to quit hiding behind the word of God and cloaking my sin. And this, these are things that God takes really seriously. But overall, the reason that I ultimately leave rejoicing is because I know how faithful he is. He is faithful and just to judge the wicked acts of wicked men. But... First John tells us, he is also, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, for this morning.